You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. Lord, I am so grateful. We're, we're grateful for the work that you're doing here, and we pray, God, that you'd only do more of it and not lesser, that you'd keep dealing with our hearts to make us, Lord, into the people, into the servants you want us to be, But Lord, in the midst of it all, we just want to see Jesus and be drawn closer and closer to him, Lord. So, Father, give us that passion to seek after Jesus and the passion to see his kingdom extended and show us how to have more of both of that this morning in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 7. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Acts chapter 7 because we took a week off for Palm Sunday Last Sunday, of course, was Easter Sunday, but now we're back here in Acts chapter 7, and we're picking up the story again with this fellow named Stephen. Stephen, who was one of the early leaders of the early church. This time, the gathering of Christians, they needed new leaders, and men like Stephen and others were gathered up to be leaders. And initially, Stephen was just chosen. I say just chosen, it's really an unfair way to say it, but he was chosen for an administrative sort of organizational duty, to be some kind of a bookkeeper or organizer in the church. But, but that didn't define the, the limit or the extent of Stephen's gifts. No, he was a man who was gifted to be able to talk about Jesus with other people. And he debated and disputed with other people about who Jesus is and what Jesus had done for him. This got him in a lot of trouble with the religious leaders. And so he was falsely accused and put on trial before the high religious council of Judaism of that time. And where we left it off last time in Acts chapter 6, at the very end of the chapter, it said, verse 15, that all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him, and they saw his face as the face of an angel. So here's Stephen called to answer for these accusations that have been made against him. And he's not going to take the Fifth Amendment, even if he could, because it didn't exist at that time. He's not going to rely upon a lawyer or try to build a counter case. It's very fascinating to see the great response of Stephen to this council as it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 7. By the way, the response is too long for us to consider in one Sunday. We're going to split it up over two Sundays. But to see Stephen's response, it's not concerned with justifying himself. It's not concerned with getting him off the charge or hearing the the verdict of not guilty. No, no, he, he is interested in proclamation is proclaiming who Jesus is and what he's done and explaining the truth in contrast to the false accusations that have been made against him. So let's take a look. Verse 1 here, Acts chapter 7. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? With that, he's commanding Stephen, Defend yourself. Speak to us. Explain yourself. Now, by the way, you should know that the high priest mentioned here was almost certainly still... Caiaphas, the same one who presided over that ill-fated trial of Jesus of Nazareth, and that very same high priest who referred Jesus to the Romans for crucifixion, that very same high priest was the one standing or sitting, I should say, in judgment of Stephen at this very period. And then 
as he invited Stephen to explain himself in light of those accusations, Stephen was accused of several things. It's recorded right back in Acts chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. It says that Stephen was accused of speaking blasphemous words against Moses, against God, and against the temple. Those verses uh, 11 through 14 of Acts chapter 6 also tell us that Stephen was accused of saying that Jesus would destroy the temple and destroy the customs of Moses. So in this response, Stephen's going to give a panorama of Old Testament history. Now, now when he's speaking to the Sanhedrin, it's really not for the purpose of saying, Sanhedrin, you don't know these things from Israel's history, and I do know them. Let me teach you. No, he knew that the Sanhedrin, that this council that sat in judgment of them, that they knew very well what these things were from the history of Israel. But rather, they hadn't considered them. Isn't that funny how we like to do that? We like to take history and airbrush parts out of it. People like to do that with American history, don't they? They take American history and just airbrush entire parts out of it. We find this sometimes especially sort of challenging when you see how much that that, that Christianity and the spread of the gospel and the, the, the vibrancy of the message of Jesus Christ and the influence it's had on the population of as a whole. It's been a huge defining shaping force in American history. But you wouldn't know that, would you, from a lot of the ways American history is presented today? Well, in the same way, in the minds of many of these Jewish real, uh, um, leaders, whole segments of their history had just sort of been forgotten in their minds. Stephen won't let them forget. Right here, right now, he's calling their attention to it. Please understand, Stephen was not really defending himself here. This isn't a defense. He's not interested in in, uh, doing anything else but proclaiming the truth about Jesus in a way that they could understand. But at the same time, those words were a brilliant, spirit-led answer to the accusations that were made against him. Jesus made a remarkable promise in Mark chapter 13, verse 11. He said this to his disciples, But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. This, right here with Stephen, is a living, breathing fulfillment of that promise that Jesus gave to his disciples. Even though we should say that at the end of it all, and I don't mean to spoil the story for you, and we'll get to it next week, at the end of it all, Stephen ends up dead. The council's furious with the reply that he gave to them. He's furious that he put his finger on things from Old Testament history that they wanted to forget, but he brought it right before us. They're furious with him. And Stephen ends up dead. On that measure, you'd say that this, this response he gave to the council was a total failure. But it wasn't a failure, was it? Instead, it was a total success. Because Jesus didn't promise in that thing that he said to his disciples that they would have no problems or no troubles. But he said, I'll be there working in the midst of it all. You know, what I love about this response that Stephen begins with, starting at verse 2, is that Jesus is at the center of it all. He's taking a look at what God did throughout Old Testament history. And he's trying to get through to these religious leaders. God is doing a new thing. 
He's doing a really new thing. And that the followers of Jesus were involved with something new. It was having a new focus on Jesus. It was having a new focus not on Moses. It was a new thing not focused on the temple. And it was a new thing that would be rejected by many people. And so Stephen knew, or at least he had to know, that the response he's going to begin with at verse 2, that it would actually get him in worse trouble. But Stephen didn't care. He wasn't interested in hearing not guilty. You know what Stephen was interested in hearing? He was interested in hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. That's what he would hear by the end of the chapter. So here we go, starting now, verse 2, the words of Stephen. And he said, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came to the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to the land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. Friends, verse 2 begins in the most remarkable way. And I don't know if his original hearers caught it right away, but they should have. In the very beginning, Stephen says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. At the very beginning, Stephen emphasized the fact that the God of glory appeared to Abraham before he ever came to the promised land. Before he ever came to Canaan. Before he ever came to what we would call today Israel. Before any of that happened, the God of glory appeared to him when he was still in Mesopotamia and not in Canaan. Now i got to pause just for a moment. You'll have to give me just a little bit of preacher's excuse here. Isn't that a great word? Mesopotamia. It refers to today what we would call modern-day Iraq in the modern Middle East. And whenever I hear that word, it makes me think of a great preacher from history, a guy named George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a great 18th century preacher and evangelist, and he was such a great speaker, such a great orator, that it said, and this was literally written at the time, that he could make audiences weep or tremble just by the way he said the word Mesopotamia. <laughs> there was a very famous actor in his day, a man named David Garrick, who once said, I would give a hundred gold coins if I could only say, oh, like Mr. Whitfield. Now that's a great preacher right there. Okay, but anyway, Mesopotamia was the place. But don't miss the idea. Don't miss the point. You see, what Stephen is saying is, the God of glory appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia before there was ever a temple in Jerusalem. Before there was ever a promised land. The revelation of the God of glory was not dependent on a temple. It was not dependent upon square footage in a certain place. No, God was greater than the land and God was greater than the temple. And this explained how Stephen was falsely accused of speaking against the temple. He wasn't defending himself. He was just explaining. 
And by the way, if you look at verse 2 again, it isn't as if God only spoke to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. He appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. I mean, theoretically, God could have stayed in Canaan or in Mount Sinai and shouted to Abraham all the way from there, right? But he didn't. He appeared to Abraham right there in Mesopotamia. And what did he say to him? Verse 3 tells us, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Now, God said this to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Now, Stephen explained that Abraham did not immediately go to Canaan. Look at verse 4. It says he dwelt in Haran. Now, I'm not going to get into the geography, but let me just tell you in basic thinking, you have Mesopotamia, you have the promised land, and Haran is somewhere in the middle between the two. So when God said to Abraham, hey, you, go to Canaan, what did Abraham do? He said, all right, I'll go to Haran. Not so perfect obedience, right? Here's the other thing. God said to him, go to Canaan and leave your family behind. And what did he do? He brought his father and his nephew with him. Not exactly perfect obedience. You know, I I read this and I say, this is wonderful. Because you never really read in the book of Genesis how it emphasizes Abraham's partial obedience. It's certainly there. You can see it. But here Stephen is just showing us something that we should remember was that Abraham, even though he was partially obedient, it didn't take God's promise away. You could say that God's promise was on hold in his life until he did obey, but he didn't remove it. And I believe that much the same principle works in our life today. God's the same God who dealt with Abraham and he deals with us today. For many of you, God has spoken to your life a promise. And that promise expects or anticipates some response of obedience in your life. And you know what? You haven't obeyed God with what he's told you to do. And you fear that God's taken away the promise. he, He probably should, shouldn't he? I mean, don't we deserve that? That if God says, okay, if you do this, I'll give you that. And we say, no, Lord, I'm not going to do it. God says, okay, great, I'm not going to give it to you. But I want you to know, and I'm not speaking absolutes here, but in general, that's not God's pattern. In general, God says, okay, fine, you don't want to obey me? Let's push the pause button on the fulfillment of this promise in your life. And that's what he did for Abraham. He pushed the pause button. And when Abraham was ready to get serious about who God was and what God asked him to do, God said, great. You want to go all the way to Canaan now? Now we'll do it. You want to leave behind your father? Actually, God had to leave behind his father because his father finally died. And he left him in Haran. Fine, do it. And then I'll go. But it's just a wonderful thing. And again, as we see that, that Abraham was certainly such a giant of the faith, even being called the father of those who believe, yet he didn't start out as a giant of the faith. God had to build it in him just like he builds it in each one of us. But you can see... The, the signs of Abraham's faith so clearly. Look at verse 5 where it says, God gave him no inheritance, no child. Abraham was promised both the land and descendants, but he had no outward proof of either. He could only trust God for the fulfillment of these things. I think it's absolutely amazing to think of it, right? God gave Abraham a promise and he said, Abraham, this land, it's all yours. 
Nobody else on earth recognized that land as being Abraham's. It would be something like this. Take all that beachfront property on Cabrillo, right? Take the whole stretch, you know, from the park up on the hill up to East Beach and just say God speaks to your heart and says, this all belongs to you. And then go start talking to people about it, right? They'll put you in the loony bin, won't you? Wasn't it something a little bit like that for Abraham? God says to him, it all belongs to you, everything. Well, great, God, who else are you going to tell? Nobody, just you. But here's the difference. It was no fantasy. It was no figment of his imagination. This was the truth of God, and it turned out to be true in the life of Abraham. And the same thing with inheritance. Excuse me, with not just inheritance, with his descendants, I should say. God promised Abraham that he'd have a multitude of descendants. And listen, it was a long time until he even had one child. But he had to believe God. He had to trust it. And so uh, even when Abraham was in the land, he was a pilgrim. He, He didn't make an idol out of the blessings that God gave to him. Either the blessings that God gave to him or promised to give to him. And that was a rebuke to the religious leaders that Stephen spoke to. Because many of them had stopped being pilgrims and they made idols out of the blessings. Was the temple a blessing for Israel back then? Absolutely. But they made an idol out of the blessing. Was it a fact that they were living in the promised land? Was that a blessing? You better believe it was. But they made an idol out of that blessing. And listen, blessings can make the most dangerous idols in our lives. Friends, please be careful of this. Good things often make the most dangerous idols. And there are people who have terrible idolatry in their life, but you would never suspect it at the first glance because it's something that God's blessed them with. God's blessed them, let's say, for example, with a beautiful family. And family is a blessing from God. But you know it's possible to turn that into an idol? God's blessed them material and given them wonderful resources. And it's a great thing. It's to be thanked for from God. Nevertheless, you can take those things and turn them into an idol. Sometimes those are the most difficult, the most challenging idols to deal with in our life. Stephen is calling them out on this very fact. Now let's go on here, verse 6, where it says, But God spoke this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they would be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. Now again, I just imagine the council listening to Stephen and they're getting a little bit annoyed. They're like, young man, who are you to teach us history from the Old Testament? We know these things, but it's very important, the points that Stephen is laying out. First of all, he's noting in verse 6, his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and they would be brought into bondage. You see, the promise that God made to Abraham would not be easy or would not be light in its fulfillment or to Abraham or to his descendants. Yet God promised to judge the very nation that brought them into bondage. And here Stephen is suggesting an idea that was very important for the men on that council to consider. He's suggesting the idea that God knows how to take care of his people. 
Yes, they're going to go into Egypt. Yes, they're going to be put into bondage. And the bondage will be for a long time. But don't you fear, God will take care of that nation that puts them into bondage. Because God knows how to take care of his people. Now at that moment, that was something that those people on the council should have understood. Why were they striking out against these early followers of Jesus Christ with such hatred and with such violence? Why? Because they thought they had to take care of it because God wouldn't. Where was the advice of Gamaliel that was given just a few chapters back, right? Now they're going totally against it in their persecution, in their active hand against a man like Stephen. So here, Stephen's just trying to remind them and show them, guys, God is big enough to protect himself and his people at the same time. You don't have to put forth a hand of violence to protect God's people. God will protect them himself. So remember that. But don't you think Stephen was also preaching that to himself? Don't you think Stephen himself needed to hear it at that moment? That at that moment, he needed to understand that God would take care of him. He could see it on the faces as he speaking to them. As he stood before that great council, he could see how angry they were becoming. And listen, they would become so angry by the end of Stephen's speech that you could even say that they were beside themselves. That they were almost driven to madness by what he said. Nevertheless, he was bold and he said it. He also points out in verse 8, That God gave them the covenant of circumcision and that Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs and how circumcision became the sign of the covenant for Israel. And that covenant was passed down through these descendants of Abraham. It wasn't just a promise that God made with Abraham, but he made it to his descendants. And so Abraham received the promise and then his son Isaac received the promise and then his son Jacob received the promise and then Jacob's 12 sons, the 12 sons of Israel received the promise. Now, beginning at verse 9, he's going to talk about God's faithfulness through Joseph. Here we go. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and over all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and they were laid in the tomb that Abraham brought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Did you notice that in verse 9? What's one of the first things he says about Joseph? That God was with him. Wait a minute. Joseph, you're not in the promised land. You're in Egypt. But God was with him. Again, he's emphasizing the spiritual presence of God with Joseph all the time. Joseph didn't need to go to the temple to be close to God. There was no temple. Instead, God was with him all the time. Now, friends, I know it seems a little bit repetitive, but this is a very important point. God is not confined to certain places. You know, a place this was beautifully emphasized for me 
was the first time I ever went to Israel. By the way, I hope those of you who are going with us to Israel in November. I hope you're excited about that. It's going to be a great trip. And we're doing another trip in February. So fill it up. It'll be a great trip. First time I ever went to Israel, I was so excited to go to the Western Wall and pray. <clears throat> the Western Wall, sometimes called the Wailing Wall. It's the place that's not on the Temple Mount. The Western Wall is just a retaining wall for the Temple Mount. But it's as close as faithful Jews want to go to the temple today. So they go there and they pray. And it's really sort of amazing the pageantry they have there. They divide it between a men's section and a women's section. And over there at the men's section, you know, they'll have bar mitzvahs there and special ceremonies. They'll be having parties and throwing candy. But you'll always see the guys with the long, you know, curly hair and the special hats. And then they're praying and bobbing back and forth. And there's little scraps of paper inserted all over the Western Wall. People write prayers and they think that God will especially hear them. And I was so excited to go to the, to the Western Wall and pray, right? So I go there and I take the little paper yarmulke that they give you and I put it on my head. And I go up to the West Wall and I go, oh man, this is going to be the most beautiful time of prayer I ever have in my life. Yes, Lord, I can't wait for this. And I go up there and I even have my little scrap of paper with a prayer request on it. And I'm all ready to go. And I start praying and I'm like just ready to feel the amazing presence of the Lord. Rare I am right there at the Western Wall to pray. And you know what? You know what I felt? Nothing. And I tell you, it was almost demonstrable from God saying nothing. Just here you are. You're praying. You could be praying in California. You're praying here. (laughs) And then God spoke to my heart something so powerful, I'll never forget it. He said this. He said, you're not any closer to me here than you are in California. And my heart rejoiced. I got so happy that I didn't feel anything special at the Western Wall. I was like, yes, Lord. It's not like this is a place where I'm especially close to you. And other places I'm somehow far from you. No, you're the God of the whole earth. Abraham didn't need to go to a temple to be close to you. Joseph didn't need the temple to have God appear to him or be with him. No, and I'm just as close with the Lord wherever I am when I set foot on this globe. Because that is the God of this world. He reigns over all the earth. Now, if I could just share with you, on subsequent trips to Israel, I've had amazing times of prayer at the Western Wall. But this first time, I think it was so important for God to speak that into my heart, to say, no, you're not any closer to me here. This is a wonderful place. Israel's a great place. But it's not that the presence of the Lord is any more powerful there. It was just amazing for me to hear that. But that's what it was for Abraham. That's what it was for Joseph. You saw those very words right there in verse 9. God was with him. He was in Egypt, but God was with him. And then going on now, verse 9, he also says that the brothers of Joseph, it says they, becoming envious, sold Joseph. Now, you know what I think is remarkable about this? Now he's starting to weave another thread into his response. The first major thread was this. 
God doesn't need the temple or doesn't need the land of Israel to be close to his people. Okay, that's the first thread woven through the life of Abraham and woven through the life of Joseph. Now here's the second one. And this one's a little more challenging for those people he was speaking to. The second challenge is basically this. The people have a habit of rejecting those who God sends to them. Becoming obvious, they sold Joseph. Joseph became a picture of Jesus in that the sons of Israel rejected Joseph, who later on became a savior to them. Joseph saved them. He had grain. He had resources of food when nobody else did. Joseph saved them. But the first time Joseph came to them, they rejected him. Isn't that remarkable to notice? Hey, you guys have a habit, he's saying this to the council, you guys have a habit of rejecting the people God sends to you. Wake up. And now he's going to go on and make the same point here, starting at verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham... The people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son, and Pharaoh, excuse me, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deed. Moses was also like Jesus because when he was born, he was well-pleasing to God and he was preserved in his childbirth. God knew how to take care of Moses. And the fact that he was well-pleasing to God without the temple, without the customs of the religion of that time showed what a powerful thing that God was right to Moses there in Egypt. We also notice that verse 22 says that he was mighty in words and deeds. Again, just like Jesus who would come after him in that he was wise and skillful with words and a man of mighty deeds. By the way, if I could just go just on a slight little side trail here. Isn't it interesting what it says about Moses, that he was a man mighty in words and deeds? Because later, when Moses is about 80 years old, there on Mount Sinai, meeting with God at the burning bush, what does Moses say? He says, I don't know how to talk in front of people. You see, apparently, Moses grew up to be the guy who was the winner, the guy who was the spokesman, the guy who could do it. He was mighty in words and deeds. But then he had to leave Israel, did he not? Leave Israel, leave Egypt and hide out in the desert. And so what did he do in those 40 years? Well, God basically broke him, right? So at the end of 40 years, he was no longer a man mighty in words and deeds. At the end of 40 years, he was a man who was watching his father-in-law's sheep out on a dusty hill out in the middle of the desert. That's just a little side trail to see how God worked in the life of Moses. But here, don't miss this point, starting at verse 23 now. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand 
but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Man, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. See what happens here up to verse 29? Stephen is explaining this to the council. Hey, Moses was raised up and he was oppressed by the, the way that his people suffered there in the land of Israel. And it came in his heart to visit his brethren. At that appointed time, <coughs> excuse me, Moses came down from his royal throne out of care and concern for his brethren. By the way, that's another way that Moses was like Jesus, right? At an appointed time, he came down from his royal throne and he did it out of care and concern for his brethren. But look at it, most pointedly, verse 25. He supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. When Moses offered deliverance to Israel, he was rejected and he was rejected with spite. Israel denied, it's right there in verse 27, that he had any right to be a ruler and a judge over them. Friends, do you see what Stephen's message is? It's so plain. He's speaking to the council and he's saying, you've rejected Jesus. Jesus is the one I'm talking to. And you rejected Jesus, just like your forefathers rejected Moses the first time he came to him. Just like your forefathers rejected Joseph the first time Joseph came to them. You're denying that Jesus has any right to be a ruler and a judge over you. Now, Stephen's going to continue to develop that theme, that theme where he sees Jesus all over the Old Testament. But notice what a pointed word this was. Listen, when Joseph revealed himself and he was rejected the first time by his people, God gave them another chance to receive him and be saved, and they did. And the family was preserved in Egypt. When Moses was initially rejected, and Moses, the people didn't want to have anything to do with him. Who made you ruler and a judge over us? Who who do you have anything to do with us? They rejected him the first time, but 40 years later, they accepted Moses as being the deliverer of the nation. Stephen was preaching a message that was actually full of grace and compassion for this council. (coughs) Excuse me. His message was something like this. You guys rejected Jesus the first time, just like you rejected Joseph, just like you rejected Moses. But even as you accepted Joseph the second time and accepted Moses the second time, you can now accept Jesus the second time. Isn't that a startling thing? How many of us have accepted Jesus after rejecting him for so long? Isn't it amazing? Does God owe that to any of us? Wouldn't you think that God would almost say, okay, here's Jesus, take him or leave him. You say, okay, leave him. I don't want him. God says, fine, I'm never coming back to you. That's not how God works, is it? God will be so patient, so loving, so so careful with us. But let me say, there's an end to it somewhere, right? There are for us 
the, the, a last time that we will be invited to receive, a last time that we will be invited to open up our hearts to who Jesus is and what he does in our life. You see, Stephen is going to continue to develop this theme where he sees Jesus all over the Old Testament. Stephen looked at Abraham and he thought of Jesus. He thought of the God who appears to us, and that's who Jesus is. Stephen looked at Joseph, and what did he think of? He thought of Jesus. He thought of the God who is with us, even as God was with Joseph. Stephen looked at Moses, and he thought of Jesus, the God who rescues us, even as Moses rescued his people. Now, friends, there's something wonderful about seeing Jesus and seeing his work for us everywhere, but many people simply fail to see it. And they fail to receive it. I wonder. I wonder how Jesus is working in your life right now, but you're not seeing it. You, you might even be crying out to God. God, where are you? What am I doing? What are you doing? And God is going, I'm here. I'm right here. Can't you see this? I think that this was one of Stephen's main messages to that Sanhedrin, to that council, was to say, Jesus has been with you all the time. He's been working even though you've rejected him. Now, now it's time for you to receive. Friends, it's time for us to receive. And I just want to speak a word to the discouraged heart out there. You, you wonder where Jesus is. You, you wonder in the midst of whatever it is you're going through or you think you're going to go through, where is Jesus in the midst of all of that? Listen, he's closer than you ever imagined. Just because your eyes haven't been able to see him, don't believe that he's not there. Jesus is there just as, as much as Stephen could see him in the midst of all this in the Old Testament. We can see Jesus where he's at with us right here, right now. You know what I think one of the beautiful things that God does for us in a Christian life? Is he knows how weak we are. He does. The Psalms say that the Lord pities us as a father pities his children. You ever want to take one of your little children just close to you and go, oh, poor dear, poor thing. God pities us that way. And one of the ways that God ministers to us in the midst of that sweet, if I could say it this way, this sweet pity that God has for us is he gives us material things to represent the spiritual work that he does in our life. And that's what we're going to do right now in receiving communion. When you see that bread, you think of the broken body of Jesus for you. When you see that cup, you think of his poured out blood for you and I. And friends, those things are spiritual. His broken body was a physical fact on Golgotha, but it's applied to us spiritually. But God says, I'll give you something material that you can grab a hold of. Any of you, you need to be strengthened in faith. You, you need to be reconfirmed today in the strength of what God is doing in your life. Something material to remind you of the spiritual. God's going to give it to you right now as we take communion. But I must say, I must say, for some of you here this morning, if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, if you haven't seen Jesus in your life, now's the time for you to do it. And you can decide so right now in your heart. 
And you can make your taking of that bread and your drinking of that cup just just your proclamation to God and to everybody else that you want to receive Jesus. That just as much as you're going to eat that bread and take it deep within you and drink that cup and take it deep within you, that's what you want Jesus to do in your life. So let's pray together right now and then we'll distribute the bread